He is indeed a good, good father, isn't he? Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for this time we've had together in the assembly, joining together to praise you, to receive encouragement from one another, to allow our hearts to be swept up into your presence, oh God, and to be reminded after a week of whatever we've been doing and wherever we've been, that you are a good, good father. You're perfect in all of your ways. And you are our God, and we love you. And we thank you now for our, uh, the time we have to turn our attention to your word to us. Your word is truth. And Lord, our hearts need truth. In these days of perplexity and struggle and discontent, we need a sure word from the Lord, an anchor for our souls, hope that will not give up on us. So Father, we are anticipating what you have for us today, and I pray that our hearts will be wide open to receive the truth and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what kind of a week did you have? Good week? Not so good week? Same old, same old? Well, I hope you had a better week than Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk had this week, as together they lost about $60 billion. Can you imagine just going on with your life? I lost 60 billion bucks this week. Unreal. Probably you had a better week than Aaron O'Toole had this week as well. You're probably, okay, let's not, let's, let's settle down. There's too much joy in the house of the Lord. Um, I think we need... Uh, Perhaps, perhaps you have had a diff difficult time, or perhaps you've been in a wilderness time for quite, quite a while, and you need a promise for a tough week or a tough month or a tough season. I'm not sure where you're at. But there's a broad in scope promise that is much beloved and much turned to, much uh, turned to in crisis. In fact, after the promise of John 3.16, perhaps the most common known promise is this one. John 3.16 promises us, us of salvation. Romans 8.28 promises us of sanctification in God's providence. I'm not sure we've invested ourselves enough in the reality of this promise and what it really, really brings to us. And I, by God's strength and, and based on his word and the work of his Holy Spirit, I trust today that, that it will really, um, really lodge itself in your soul and your heart. I, I know this promise so well. I've gone to it so many times in my own life. But it was great to once again just start from scratch and look at it fresh and study it again and, and gain from it true assurance and confidence. 
because it is highly possible. There, there are so many people who have found themselves in a prolonged wilderness of struggle with something maybe they've done in their life and they just can't get past it. They don't, they're not convinced the Lord is gonna get past it and they just are stuck, stuck in this place and not moving forward. And that is not the intention of God for us. And this promise really leads us from the mystifying wilderness of difficult things that have come into our life and takes us into the uh, promise of God's providence for us. And it is breathtaking. In fact, as Paul writes this and in his sort of conclusion of the section, he is, you, you kind of catch up with him and he has lost his breath in the excitement and enthusiasm of what he has just written and what he is really himself taking in and realizing what, what he is writing. I, th- I think many of us, of course, are, are asking a lot of questions. Is it normal for Christians to face so many hardships? And are these things hindering in some way my spiritual advance? Or can good things really come from bad things? Or is it true that if I lose something, it's always because God has something better for me in this world? I wanna pause with that question and answer it right up front. The operative phrase was in this world. Because I know a lot of us try to console one another by saying, oh, don't worry, you, you know, that bad thing happened or you lost that thing. God has something better for you. That's not necessarily true. Because the operative phrase is in this world. We have been promised many things, but not necessarily always something better. Well, let's look at the text. I want to read it, and I want to look at the surrounding text to this promise. As you know, it's embedded in context. So let's look at it. It's Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. We're going to read right through to verse 32. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know 
that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the word of God. So the promise, we've received the promise out of this section, and that promise is we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, as I re-looked at this uh, in study and uh, this familiar promise, I just underlined a few things that, that grabbed my attention, phrases that grabbed my attention that I thought, you know what, we need, to, we need to really understand what is going on here. Things like, we know all things, the good who love him are called purpose. Now, translations of this verse vary, especially in subject, but not in meaning, and I, I, we will get bogged down in, um, you know, the minutiae if we spend time there, and I don't want to. Suffice it to say that, that the translations and how they, how they function all point to the providence of God. You always get there. That, that eclipses everything in this verse. It is about God. It is about his directive, protective care of his people. It always rests there. In, in fact, the verse itself, actually in the original language, begins with the phrase, for those who love him. It really launches that right in the front. And I'll, I'll look at that in a few moments with you, but, but that's, that's how, it, how it is originally laid out. Now, as you know, this hasn't been just handed to us in, in a vacuum. It actually was, was written in a a setting, a background, a historical setting. It's also within a context in Scripture. And I think it's very useful for us and helpful for us to understand where this is embedded and what was going on. And it helps us to really understand the, the weight of this promise to, to us. So the, the setting and the situation and the, the background from which this promise was made is in Paul's writings from the city of Corinth, written in, about the third, written in his third missionary journey in 57 AD. And all of these, these dates will matter, and I'm going to get to it. But he's probably about 25 years into his, his actual ministry of evangelizing uh, Asia and, and uh, Asia Minor and Europe, and actually bringing the uh, gospel to, to people. And um, it's slightly, just a few years before he himself appealed to Caesar and ended up being taken to Rome, put in house arrest. So this is written actually before Philippians, which we talked about last week, and, uh, and then ultimately beheaded. So he's about five years away from that. And he, so he's writing to a, a group of people in Rome, and he talks to them at the very end of his letter about his dream of evangelizing, that his ministry reach would expand and go into Spain, which that never happened. But that, that he talks about that. And the church, of course, was founded by witnesses to Pentecost. 
You know, when you read through the book of Acts, it's, it's an amazing book because we bypass a lot of things and don't pay a lot of attention to it, but, but within it is such uh, an abundant, uh, abundant amount of historical accuracy, which we would expect from God's Word, but every time you cross-reference or do some study somewhere else, you find out just how accurate it absolutely is. And, in, and, and sort of a little obscure phrase in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, which... which jumps out at me now when I was studying is the founding of the church in Rome. You have Phrygia and Pamphylia, verse 10, Egypt, and the parts that's talking about people from everywhere who came to, uh, um, who, who came to Jerusalem uh, for Passover, and you have from Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, and they're a little tucked in here, visitors from Rome. And these visitors from Rome took the gospel back to the city, and a church was formed. And Paul is now writing to this church, formed by these few visitors that providentially God brought, Jews that God brought to Passover, who became converted and went back to Rome. Now, in AD 49, all the Jews were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius. Again, Acts is helpful to... For us to see that in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 3, um, again, Luke records, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, where he wrote the letter to Rome. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, this is recorded in not just biblical history, but this is recorded in actual secular history as well. And so Paul hears a message from Aquila and Priscilla, meets them, and hears about this church in Rome and writes this letter back to them, which otherwise might not have taken place other than the providential work of God to have the Emperor Claudius kick all the Jews out of Rome. And why were the Jews all kicked out of Rome in 49 AD? Because Claudius was tired of hearing the Jews wrangle about Crestus. Who is Crestus? The Christ. It was the talk of the town, and it was driving him crazy, all of the unrest and unsettled, so he booted all of the Jews out of Rome. Now, what happens when that happens is now you have only a Gentile church, because all the Jews are expelled. Paul is, is, is now, now this is a Gentile church, but however, by the time of the writing of this letter, the Jews have been allowed to come back because when we read Romans 16.3, it talks about Priscilla and Aquila being in Rome. In the meantime, there's a new emperor. Claudius gives way to Nero. Nero became the emperor in 54 AD, right through to 68 AD. And there may not have been a more cruel emperor ever than Nero. Not only cruel, but insane. Now, Paul is writing this letter three years into Nero's uh, oppressive regime in Rome. By this time, the church is being heavily persecuted by Nero. Not only that, but you've got the Jews who've come back and immerse themselves back in the Gentile church. 
there's all kinds of unity and tension because you've got Jews with an Old Testament cultural bent on dietary laws and issues of that nature being thrust into a formerly pagan group of people who've now come to Christ. That's why Paul writes Romans 14 and 15, you know, tolerance with each other, you know, give each other a break, you know, like understand each other's conscience and, and don't, there's disputable matters, but don't break the church for all of this kind of stuff. So you've got this context going on. And also he's writing and telling the Gentiles, don't be arrogant about your salvation. You know, don't be mistreating these Jews. Because the reason, the only reason you're saved is because these Jews brought the gospel to you. You are, you are grafted in to the people of God. Never forget that. And, and that message is to us as well. Never forget that we, by the grace of God, were grafted into the people of God. We're the wild olive branch. So overriding all of this in terms of context is Paul writing to a group of people who are suffering suffering greatly and they're bewildered by it came to know God we're supposed to be the apple of his eye he died Christ died for us what is going on and we as God's people regularly in our lives are saying the same thing why is God allowing this to be in my life why am I in this deep season of distress what is God doing as questions circulate around our lives, why are we suffering? And they were in need of confidence that God was watching over them, that God had them, that the Spirit of God was, was with them. And so in the context, the immediate context, really demonstrates to us that Paul is writing this section of the letter assurances that life in the Spirit will bring for you. He wants to encourage them and to encourage us. And, and I just want to quickly bring out three, three quick things to you in, in terms of the context, the immediate context, in, in especially the context of suffering, keeping in mind that Paul writing from Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 5 says, the sufferings of Christ that are ours in abundance. Now does anybody want to really hear that? Do you want to hear a letter from the, your pastor who writes you, you know, blessings to you in the name of the Lord, those of you who are suffering in abundance. Like, oh my, could you come up with something? Paul writes this to them, you're suffering in abundance. That word abundance is over and above. And then he gives them this explanation of why they're suffering, because there's been a cosmic war declared on you. When you came to know Jesus Christ as your own Savior, there was a cosmic war declared on you. I'm probably not speaking to people who don't know anything about what I'm saying. It feels like a cosmic war is on you many, many times, does it not? And so he gives this, he talks about the, the, the creation itself. We, we know, he writes, we know that the whole of creation is groaning under the painful strain of, of, of sinful fallenness. We know that. We know, I mean, here's why we're suffering. Here's why it's happening. Christianity is colliding with a fallen world. But he says to them, but you have hope in the Spirit, verse 24. The Spirit gives you hope even though you live in this fallen world. You've experienced this. You continue to experience this. So he says, we know that. 
But then he says in verse 26, but we do not know how to pray in our perplexity and the struggles that we have and, and, and the sufferings that are around us. We don't know how to pray properly. We don't even know what to ask God. We don't even know, we, we regularly don't even know what God desires or what is his will. And Paul says, I have good news for you. The Spirit of God intercedes for you in your groanings, in your agony. In other words, just pray. Just call out to the Lord. Just groan out to the Lord and the Holy Spirit will reconfigure your groanings so that they are heard by God according to his will. So he says, we have the Spirit of God to encourage us in our prayers. He gives us assurance and ability to pray even when we aren't sure what to pray. And then he gets to our promise this morning. So he says, we know about the creation and fallenness of creation. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit helps us. And we know who will sort all of this out and why. That's our promise. He we know that God is at work. And our ability to grow and thrive in God is not dependent on the perplexities and the sufferings that are around us. That's what we know. And he talks now about and why we know this. So as we launch in, I want to I just share with you four major ideas that I see out of here. There are more, but just four this morning. Uh, in terms of the assurance of God's providence in, ca in causing all things to assist in your salvation and in your sanctification. Now, there are some boundaries and some qualifications that we need to look at, but so let's, let's just dig right in. And I'm going to do it on the basis of four questions, and we'll answer them. And the first question is this, for whom is the promise? For whom is this promise? It's not for everyone. It's very much boundaried. It, it absolutely, remember I said to you that in fact, the order of the original language begins with for those who love him. The promise is for believers. Believers in particular, whereby two things must be true. They must love God, and they must be called according to his purpose. That describes a believer. That describes every one of you who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. You love God, and you are called according to his purpose. This does not apply to the unchurched who try to quiet each other with some sort of encouragement by saying, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. How many times have you heard that? It doesn't matter what anything happens, they all phone up their friend, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, I, I need to tell you that in terms of lost people, not, not necessarily. The reason has nothing to do with the purpose of God. It's a matter of cause and effect. You do something weird, something weird's going to happen to you. In fact, ultimately, they spiral into the um, harmful ways because of, of, of the way uh, unbelievers live. So this is for believers. In particular, for those who love God. You can't claim this promise for you unless you love God and are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus. So for those called once for all, called in, in to the, be the people of God who are always loving him, that's who we are. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. We are called to be those who love God. And how do we, how do we embrace this promise properly? He is talking about loving God, period. 
Not loving God because of the gifts he gives to us. Not loving the idea of God. Not loving God because uh, if, if nice things are happening to us. Not, not loving God because he brings us into a family and a community and we have friends and brothers and sisters. No, it's loving God just for who he is. And why is that critically important? Because we are going to be talking about the things that happen in our life. Can I get a, well, I don't think I'll ask for an amen because you're not going to amen this. There's a lot of bad things that happen to us. Nobody wants to amen that. What are we going to do with those? What are we going to do with those things if our love for God is a contract love that is based only upon God, what he gives us or what he the nice things that we enjoy or the idea of God or the community that we live in? What about the other things that come our way? Well, some of you will say, well, didn't Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments? So isn't that how I show Jesus I love him by keeping his commandments? Well, yes, sort of, but Jesus wasn't saying, if you keep my commandments, then that condition entitles you to be declared loving me. He was saying, those who love me keep my commandments. There's behavior that follows true love. It's like when I walk, when I walk uh, into my house after a long, hard, arduous day here at the office. And I come in sagging shoulders, having been beat up all day in this cosmic war. And I rush over and hug my wife, Lynn. And I say to her, Lynn, this hug proves that I love you. The ladies go, eh. She doesn't want a hug that proves I love her. She wants a hug that comes from the fact that I do love her. And the hug does demonstrate that. But it first comes, and the action comes from, legitimate true love. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about here for God. That I love him. Period. Second question, what is the good that comes out of this promise? Because it says, for the good. Now be careful what you expect to be good. When Jesus was on his way back to glory soon, he left this statement in Luke chapter 21, verse 12 and on, about how to expect things to be, particularly as the end was nearing. And he writes this in verse 12 of Luke 20, or states this in Luke 12, 21, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. 
This is what Jesus left us in terms of expectations. So what is the good here? And we're not left to a subjective uh, opinion of what is the good that Paul's referring to here. He tells us directly what it is. The good relates to God's purpose. That's what's good. The purpose of God for us to transform us into the image of Christ Jesus and to fit us for glory. That's what's good. Our calling is a stress on, on, first of all, was on love, and now our stress on our calling. We have been brought into the awareness and knowledge of the truth and enabled to respond to it in faith that God might continue to grow us and transform us into the image of Christ Jesus. His objective work in our lives is dependent on God himself. You say to yourself, well, how do I know that I'm actually called into this family of God? What, what is that, how, what's that feel like? How do I know what that is? Well, when Paul writes to the Corinthians in the first chapter of the first letter that he writes to them, he basically says to them that the gospel will no longer seem foolish to you. It will make sense to you and you will respond to it. That's why I've said so, because the, the gospel seems foolish to those who are perishing. So that's why I've said countless times to you, if you can believe, believe. In other words, if the Spirit of God is at work in your life enabling you to actually believe this to be true, then embrace it, receive it, welcome it. It's the work of God in your life. Matthew Henry writes in this section, so well, the spirit tends to the spiritual good of those that love God. In breaking them off from sin, bringing them nearer to God, weaning them from the world and fitting them for heaven. So we don't have to busy ourselves with unduly protecting ourselves and bubble wrapping our lives, we're allowed to live free, confident, convinced lives that in following Christ, we are God's project and he is looking after us. Now that doesn't give you a license to live recklessly. It gives you a responsibility to live a risky life following Christ himself. Consider the cosmic showdown of the life of Job. God himself provoked a showdown with Satan. Because Satan stated to God, Job, you know, God says, you know, have you considered my servant Job? He's, he's upright in all of his ways. And God says, well, he, Satan says back to God, well, he only serves you because you take care of him. You put a hedge around him and don't let anything happen to him. If you touch him at all, he will turn on you. Job demonstrated that his love was not contractual with God, that he actually loved God for who God is. He said to his wife, should we accept good things from the Lord and not bad things? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away and then he says to her, what? You know, don't you? Well, then say it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, I find it fascinating because we, we never really find out what, what is going on until the very end of the book where in Job 42, verse 5, Job says this. 
with all of his perplexity and all of this bizarre stuff happening to him and all of the unhelpful counsel he got from his so-called friends, his concluding statement at the end of the book is this, my ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. And of all the things that the New Testament writers could have picked up in the book of Job, James records this in James chapter 5, verse 11. The whole deal about Job is where God showed his mercy and compassion to Job. So all of that that Job goes through was intended to grow him and for God to embarrass Satan and gain glory for himself and demonstrate to Job his mercy and his compassion. So when you ask the question in perplexity, why, oh God, why am I going through this? What are you doing to me? Perhaps it's simply an opportunity for God to show you his mercy and his compassion. Or something else about God. Because God alone brings triumph from tragedy. There's a third question. How many things in your life does this promise cover? Beloved, answer the question. How many things does this promise cover? All things. Now you're sitting here, maybe most of you sitting here, not under the strain of some horrible circumstance. I'm not being presumptuous. I know that some of you may be. But in this particular setting, in this particular moment, for most of us, it might be very easy for us to say all things, of course. Until one of those all things is really a bad thing. All things, by the way, in this promise are not necessarily good things. And even when they aren't good things, Paul says, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How sweeping is this? This is absolutely, ultimately sweeping. Look at it. Listen to it. All things, God works for the good. You know, he's just given us a, 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 some, some background here. What it's like to, to the nature of being a righteous person in an unrighteous world, an adversarial, adversarial world. That means lots of not good stuff. He also talks about the fact that we are part of fallen biology. Subject to the bondage of decay. None of these are good things. We're, we're, we're in a, our own battle with our own sinfulness. And we struggle with it day after day. Under much turmoil. Not a good thing. Do you mean that God can work for my good in all of those things? Yeah, that's exactly where Paul embeds this. Exactly there where you are. Smack dab in the middle of heavy reflection whereby we read this about suffering and, and, and not knowing how to pray and all of that and we say, that's all true. It's absolutely all true. That, that's it. That's me. 
And we get to welcome this promise. There's not one thing that happens to us that God cannot cause to be for our transformation. Do you understand that, beloved? Not one single thing. The scope of God's dominion in the destiny of our lives is absolute. In fact, when Paul writes that statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1, about us being, um, suffering being ours in a, uh, abundance, I didn't complete the verse. You know there's always a completion to that kind of a statement. But he says, he goes on to write, but our, we also receive comfort from God in abundance. Using the same word. The over-the-top over suffering is met with over-the-top comfort from God. Where did Paul fundamentally learn this? I think he learned it not only in his own experience with God, but he, and, and of course from the, his communion with the Holy Spirit, but he learned this from the Old Testament truths. Consider Joseph. Joseph was human trafficked. He was wrongfully accused when he was actually trying to flee from sin. He was wrongfully incarcerated in an Egyptian prison for two years. And then he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream and is brought out of prison, elevated to a high leadership position. His brothers who betrayed him meet with him and his statement to them has set up God's people for centuries and centuries. Joseph said, in Genesis 50:20, which is the Old Testament companion to Romans 8:28, "You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives." Why is God doing this? Why is God allowing me to go through this? The one final thing you might be asking is, "Well, what about my sin? Can my sin thwart? God's good purpose in my life? Because that's a big deal. Well, let's consider Peter. Let's consider what the Lord said to him in Luke 22, verse 32, 31 and 32. Before Simon Peter sinned by betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said this to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, repented. Strengthen your brothers. Peter, not even your sin. In fact, Christ interceded that he would be stronger for his failure and able to strengthen his brothers. Nothing can prevent God's work of providence, directive, protective care in our lives, accomplishing the purpose he has for us to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus and fit us for glory. Nothing, not even our own sin. So how does this promise help us? Well, we get to know the truth. You know, Paul was overwhelmed by this, by reflecting on this and recognizing this again. And he asks this question after the promise. 
he says, what then shall we say in response to this? And I, I hope I've done a, a, at least a minor service to this text with your heart this morning through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to bring you to a wow place that says, as Paul got wrapped up in the emotion of this and the response of this and literally was saying, I don't, what words can I use? What words can I use to express the summary statement of what this really means to us in reality and emotionally. And these are the words that come to him. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for you, beloved. God is for you. God is not against you. When the emotions and your soul are screaming in hurt and struggle, saying, what's going on here, Lord? What, is, what are you doing in my life? What is happening? The answer is, I am for you. I love you. Because I foreknew you. Before you were even born... I purposed to conform you to the image of Christ Jesus and fit you for glory. Do you understand that? Before you were even born. And, you know, we, we sometimes think, and we sometimes live with a sort of a cause and effect relationship with God whereby we think, well, you know, um, maybe God's upset with me because things are not going well today. Maybe God's upset with me today. You know what, I forgot to pray. That's why I had this fender bender. It's because God, God's ticked off with me. Beloved, that's never the case with God. God is always for you. Always. And there are a lot of people who have been embedded in the wilderness for years because they've done something in their life and they can't get past it. And they think that God isn't past it. And that God can't forgive them and God won't use them. Beloved, this is for every single believer, his intention for you. Every single one of you, no matter what has taken place in your life, he has purposed you to be transformed to the image of Christ. And he is committed to that in your life. And he is committed in the most amazing way. Who but God could take all of the things that go on in our life and bring them together and package them for your good in transforming you into the image of Christ Jesus and fitting you for glory because he loves you. In the hardest moments, your feelings will fail you. They will. That's why it's important, as he said, we know this. We know this. We have to know this. Your knowledge of the truth will have to carry you. Faith over your feelings will ensure that God's intended purpose never, it prevents you from uh, wasting your suffering and hardship. Don't waste what God entrusts to you. Thinking that somehow God is upset with me. That's not it. God is shaping you, moving you, growing you, 
comforting you, being merciful to you, bringing you to himself, showing you who he is, creating an, a deeper relationship with him, a greater dependence upon him. He who begun a good thing is faithful to complete it. Philippians 1.6. So all things, pain and suffering, blessing and plenty, persecution and deaths, assist our salvation and sanctification by God's glorious providence. Father, I, I pray with my brothers and sisters here this morning and thank you for this glorious truth. I thank you for this glorious promise to us. Oh Lord, may we feel liberated to live our lives in the shadow of the Almighty, in his love, in your providential, protective, directive, care, love for us. Your purposeful plans for us, oh God. If there is any listening uh, by uh, line or here who don't know you, Lord, this promise is available. It's, it's a glorious promise to have our lives wrapped up in the infinite love of God. so that we no longer are out twisting by ourselves in this perplexing world of harshness and hurtfulness and hardness. But we are offered salvation in Christ. So Lord, we thank you that in the midst of our perplexity, your providence is overruling all things. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Just one last thought I want to leave with you. As you can imagine, having pastored for three plus decades, I've faced more than my share of, of phone calls that ended up being real gut punches for people I love so much. Just to hear what they're going through and the struggle. And, and you know, I've had spent my life kind of settling down my own feelings with faith in this great promise. But I must say, along with all of you, there are so many times when I have just had trouble with the logic of it, making sense of the incomprehensible that has come into a person's life. And it's then that the Lord reminds me through this particular text of what Paul said at the very end of this section in terms of this promise. After he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He said this, and this is truly the high point. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How? Will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul, the Lord's explanation to us in this is if the Lord God, the Father, would give the infinitely loved Son for the cause of our salvation, 
and sanctification and glorification. We can be assured that nothing that we are going through escapes his protective providential care for us in the process of our salvation. And beloved, the only way that we can work with this is to make certain that we trust what God says to us in the darkness. That he will watch over us and care for us. And that we live by faith and not by our feelings or even by our logic. Put faith in the engine of your life. Put logic and feelings in the trunk, in the caboose. They can come along for the ride, but the confidence we must have is in God's promise to us that he is working things out for good. His purpose to conform us to Christ and fit us for glory. Amen. Father, I pray this morning that we will receive and welcome this truth and hold it in our hearts with confidence and assurance by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who gives us hope for the redemption of our bodies, who em enables us to pray even when we don't know what to say to you, that same Spirit will grant us confidence in this promise that all things, you are wor at work purposefully, providentially, for your glory and our good ultimately. We thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen.